0: Giorgio, come downstairs right now and eat your dinner.
1: What are we having? WRFL Lexington, 88.1 FM. But more!
0: For over 30 years, WRFL Lexington has been your source for live, alternative programming 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. However, current health precautions are limiting our ability to provide continuous live programming. With that in mind, the following program has been pre-recorded. If you have any questions or would like to give feedback, please email contact at WRFL.FM. Regardless of our situation, WRFL is still your only alternative left. The following program contains views, ideas, and opinions that have been produced by the host DJ and their guests and are not reflective of the views of WRFL or its underwriters. For questions, comments, or concerns, please email programming at wrfl.fm. Hello, and welcome to WRFL Lexington. My name is Bree, and you're listening to the second episode of my show, Lex Talk, a show about my hometown Lexington, Kentucky and its quirks and oddities and maybe a couple commonly asked questions. Today I have on the show, Professor Jean-Marie Ruhe Willoughby, a professor of Russian studies, folklore and linguistics at the University of Kentucky, um, who is also the president of the Kentucky World Language Association. And she's going to be talking with me today about some local Lexington legends, Um, the difference between myths, legends, and folklore, and whatever else we start talking about, about Lexington and the University of Kentucky, and any facts she may have for us. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Professor Ruhe. And did I get your name right?
1: Rouje. Rouje. Yep. Excellent. Uh, You are welcome. I'm always happy to talk about legends.
0: (laughs) Okay, wonderful. Would you mind telling us a bit about who you are and what you do at the University of Kentucky?
1: Sure, I have been at UK for, oh, I think it's 26 years now. Um, And I came as a professor of Russian folklore and linguistics in the department of um, Russian and Eastern studies, which has now been merged into a a super department of languages and cultures, modern and and classical languages, literatures and cultures. And I was the department chair of that department for eight years. I just finished that um, in the last year and my research is on Russian folklore primarily, particularly legends, folk religion, and rituals. That sounds like
0: a very interesting area of study. And yeah. I remember you telling me once over email that I think, are you the only one in that department, um, folklore department, or are you just the head
1: of it? Right. There is no folklore department. It is a program within modern and classical languages, literatures, and cultures. So we have people uh, doing work across the globe (laughs) uh, in folklore studies, but nobody else studies legends. Legends is my thing. So people do other things like um, epics. They study ancient mythology. They study um, tales, but nobody else studies legends.
0: Specifically at UK, you mean?
1: you uh, UK, yeah, yes. there are people in the world other than me. Got you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I figured hey, nobody else is legend. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Do you ever get together in a group? in yeah, you know, so non-COVID
1: times. In fact, um, I am uh, the outgoing president of the International Society for Contemporary Legend Research. Oh, I missed that so, in your title. Yeah. So for now, for two years, I will be three. Excuse me, three years. I will be past president, and then my my term will end. Um, and we had our conference here, we hosted it at UK, um, about, I guess, five, six years ago now. Um, and so we meet once a year, once uh, every other year in North America, every other year in Europe. Last year was supposed to be Spain, as you can imagine, COVID mm-hmm. made, a, made that problematic. So uh, we postponed the Spain conference, um, much to everybody's sadness, but what are you going what to can do? You do yeah, yeah. so wow couple. what a great job for do you enjoy traveling oh my god i love it i that COVID has killed this uh, uh whole plan i had for this year i had uh, six trips planned wow uh, spain kazakhstan a couple to russia one to washington dc um and gone all of them
0: gone mm-hmm. so you said your your area is legends Um, Do you have a sub area within that? That's your area of expertise or where do you do most of your
1: research? Um, So particularly religious legend is what I'm interested in. Um, I am studying two sacred springs in Western Siberia. And um, these springs are said to be miraculous, they can cure. Um, And so I've been collecting legends about those springs and what people tell about their history what people tell about how they help them, and how people interact with them for for a book or a book project.
0: Wow. I love academia and how you can be studying something on the other side of the world.
1: I know. It's pretty far away. Located in Lexington. Yes. Yes. It was not uh, an intended project. It fell into my lap. And it was so compelling that I just, I just kept going. Mm-hmm. You have obvious passion for
0: what you do. And I, I love talking to people with that. Mm-hmm. To get us started before delving into some Lexington legends, would you mind explaining for us the difference between a myth, a legend, and folklore? So I remember sure. I, I interviewed you for an article I wrote a year or so ago. And that was one of the main things that stood out to me was I was calling it UK myths. And right. that was
1: not correct. They are not myths. So folklore is basically the study of the unofficial culture that every group of people has. Um, And while we tend to associate folklore with, you know, in the popular imagination, people who live in remote villages or in the mountains or, you know, out of the mainstream, every human being on this earth has folklore. Um, It is, there are three subdivisions of folklore. The first is the things we say, so stories and songs, uh, riddles, jokes, proverbs, anything that you say. Um, the second of things we do, so rituals, um, holiday celebrations, uh, food practices, how to cook, um, how to make clothes, you know, all of those kind of things. And then the third um, is things we make. So artifacts. It could be musical instruments, could be housing. You know, it could be clothing again, um, construction craps of all kinds right um and these things are subdivided by folklorists but really they form a coherent um structure for the people right so imagine something as simple as um knocking on wood right Mm -hmm. so when you say knock on wood what you're doing there is you're saying something it's a charm Um, you have an action so it's something that you do you knock And then ideally you have a piece of wood. So it's an object Mm -hmm. that you're interacting with. If you don't have a piece of wood, you know, people will often knock on their head as a little joke Mm -hmm. or, you know, knock on something else and say, okay, I'm knocking on plastic, but counts as wood, whatever it is. Right. So the um, folklore is all the unofficial stuff that teaches you how to be a member of that society and fit in well, that is not taught formally in schools or by institutions you learn it by doing and observing and from word of mouth so legends and myths are actually part of folklore they're things we say right Mm -hmm. so a myth is um in a folklore's mind a myth is a sacred narrative it is a sacred truth it is a story that describes how the world came to be the way it is, um, how humans got created, how animals got created, how the earth got created, whatever it is. Um, And it is the most sacred of all narratives. And then a legend is a story that relates human encounters with sometimes the supernatural, but things that scare us broadly.
0: Hmm. Is that it's, always
1: a part of it? Almost always. Wow. The, the function of the legend is really to come to terms with the things that we are concerned about that are in flux in our society that are causing us stress. So that can be anything from violence, right? To mm-hmm. the supernatural, to um, mysterious animals in the woods, Right. So okay. all of those things, hauntings, for example, all of those things are part of the legend tradition. And they allow us a safe space to talk about these often controversial issues that we face. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, that's incredibly interesting. And I feel like we tend to just use myth
1: as a catch-all term. Okay, because uh, I'm working on, uh, I teach introduction to folklore and I'm, we've been working with this, my students mm-hmm. on this for the last month, because we tend to think of folklore as fake right? We tend to assume that folklore means at its heart, made up stuff
0: In the story. that
1: is, is flawed thinking, right? It's, it's shoddy reason. But folklore is not necessarily fake.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's not necessarily untrue. And it's not necessarily unscientific. It's just unofficial. Um, but it's dismissed as old wives tales. And when you take myth the the Greek word myth, and it gets replaced by another religion in the case of Greek, Greece, Mm -hmm. Christianity, then what happens is the old stuff is the fake stuff and the new sacred truth replaces it, right? And so we tend to say, well, that's just an urban myth. And that means that's just fake people, fake theories spouted by people who don't understand. But to a folklorist, that's really offensive. Mm-hmm. because these stories are grappling with some of the key um, issues that as human beings we're trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. And this is a creative way, a traditional way to um, interact with these larger mysteries in a way of the, of the world we live in.
0: I was going to ask you if that's a pet peeve hearing people talk about it, uh, saying myths instead of legends, um, or whether you're just so used to it now.
1: Well, I am used to it. I just roll my eyes. You just roll your Um, eyes. Usually like if I hear somebody say it on the, on, on the radio Mm -hmm. or if I hear somebody say it on television, or if I hear somebody write it in a, you know, article, if somebody writes it in an article, I say, I wish they would just talk to a folklorist. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: They spend a lot of time talking to people who don't actually study this for a living and don't understand um, the depth and the power of these narratives. These narratives have serious power in our lives.
0: So if we're talking about local hauntings, for instance, in Lexington, or reports of hauntings, that would be under the legend category. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that seems like a good segue. Do you have any favorite local legends um, of Lexington that you know about? I my know thing- you said your research is in Siberia, so I'm not yeah. sure
1: how yeah. much my you've Lexington dealt into the local. definitely in Siberia, but folklorists, as my husband says, folklorists are always on the clock. hmm <laughs> We're always collecting material. And of course I collect um, myself, but my students also collect. So every um, week they're submitting new folklore from their own experience. And um, a lot of them live in Lexington or from Lexington mm-hmm. or from all over Kentucky. So I have a lot of Kentucky legends as a result of my students, which is great. Um, my favorite Con- uh, Lexington legend is the legend of... The Black Panther of Windburn. I have never
0: heard that one. I'm already fascinated.
1: (laughs) So in 2011, there was a a little bit of a um, news, you know, news burst on the local stations about how in Windburn, there was this Black Panther that was being sighted in all kinds of backyards, right? In this kind of urban, suburban setting. Um, and they interviewed people from fish and wildlife, you know, the news reporters were going out to try to document the panther
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, um, fish and wildlife was saying, oh, they saw a house cat or they saw, um, a, a, a black coyote, right. Or a black dog. It was not a panther. A, there are no black panthers, panthers, you know, mountain, mountain lions are not black, Um, they tend to be, you know, this kind of tawny brown color. Um, (laughs) Secondly, the big cats have been killed out in Kentucky. There are no big cats in Kentucky um, for the most part. And so it clearly must be a mistake. Yeah. The
0: jungle book maybe got into people's heads.
1: There you go. (laughs) Um, The black cat, the large, you know, the, the uh, wild cat that is uh, most common is uh, the Jaguar of South America. And clearly there probably would not be a Jaguar roaming around you know, the backyards of Lexington. So scientifically, uh, the uh, local you know, authorities said, no, the biolo- biologists said, no, this can't be. And yet, and yet, as I was writing an article about Kentucky cryptids last year for a Russian journal, I was asked to write an article for a Russian journal about the, the mysterious beasts of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. I was on the Voices of Versailles Facebook site, I live in Versailles, and there was this entire thread about Black Panthers in Woodford County. Wow. So this is um, a persistent and recurring theme. It's also been documented in Eastern Kentucky. But the idea that there is this magical creature that biology cannot explain or account for Um, is something that's quite powerful, and people um, respond to the mystery of nature. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly evocative, I think, in the Kentucky um, setting, because we live in such a beautiful state. Um, We are um, known for the wild aspects of the state, both historically as well as present. And so um, to have this mysterious creature that is part of Kentucky gives us a mystique um, and allows us to debate the nature of things like environmental degradation. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of um, arguments about, uh, in the Voices of Versailles, for example, um, exchange about how we're encroaching on natural areas. We're developing Kentucky too much. We're harming the natural environment. And what are these animals supposed to do? Of course, we're gonna come in contact with them. Yes. So
0: So. when you're talking about legends typically being in response to a fear or concern that we have, are you saying that this one's potentially in response to fears about the local environment being encroached on um, or of large black cats in general?
1: I mean, part of it is the... um... Part of it is the environment being changed, right? In this debate about do we preserve Kentucky's uh, wildlife or not? Do we develop or not? In Woodford County, this is a particularly um, fierce debate, um, preserving the land as much as possible. It's part of what attracts people to Woodford County and the like. Um, but also this idea that um, nature, as we have essentially become more suburban, is a threat.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Um, and so we find it kind of um, disturbing because we don't have those uh, encounters on a regular basis anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it's not surprising that mysterious things that could threaten your <laughs> your your suburban life would appear out of the out of the wilds, right the mysterious wilds. Um, be they black panthers or coyotes or whatever it is, right? Um, and you're concerned about your children and you're concerned about your pets and you obviously don't want them to be harmed by these no. creatures. So uh, the, the reason a the legend is so interesting to me is because the veneer is a good story. It's kind of exciting. right? Think about a black panther in your backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you're interested in and whether you choose to tell it, um, what you're concerned about can vary. So for the people who are not really worried about those issues of environmental degradation, nature being disturbed by human encroachment, um, or nature coming and attacking my family, because I don't have a young child, for example, or I don't have pets, they don't tell that story.
0: Hmm. They dismiss
1: it. They're the ones who say, that's an urban myth. Come on, people. We know there can't be a Black Panther. Um, But the ones who are working on that material, they pass it on and they defend it. Yeah, And they say the biologists are wrong. I saw it or my cousin saw it or somebody saw it. And there's a picture, right? That A lot of people were posting on the Voices of Her Sales site um, uh, pictures of, you know, distant shadowy black cats taken by motion sensing cameras. So, you know, it's hard to tell the scale, but mm-hmm. they're convinced. This thing is there. You, you just don't know it.
0: I never thought about that relationship between fear and legends before. And is that something that you research? And for you also, is is the veracity, is the truth of the the legend something that you focus on? Or is that kind of a back, on the back burner?
1: Yeah, folklores don't care. Mm-hmm. We don't care whether it's true or not. We care that people say it's true. Now, There are folklorists like John Harold Brunwand who has spent time researching, for example, um, documented events in newspapers or historical events to try to get at the core of a legend. Um, And that's, you know, perfectly reasonable thing to do. But for the most part, it's not really central to our discipline. Mm -hmm. That's the discipline of history. Yes. Okay. Right. That's such a good distinction. So, right. So they focus on w- what happened and how are people telling about it? We don't really care whether it happened or not mm-hmm. um, in many cases, um, but what we do care about is how people are talking about it, narrating it and using it to create this um, view of the of unofficial culture that we live in and the nature of reality, right? What is reality for us? Yeah. So that, That's um, fascinating. So I am actually dealing with historical legends because I'm dealing with uh, these holy springs and why they became holy. And that's important as part of the legend of these springs. It didn't just come out of nowhere. There was a historical basis. And the historical basis of the springs is, um, they were the site of Stalin era prison camps. So what struck me first um, is not that the springs were holy, the Russians, uh, Russian Orthodoxy have a lot of holy springs all over the country. It's that they were on the site of such violent past events Mm -hmm. um, and horrible places. How did they become holy? That's what I was interested in. And what are people doing? What are they trying to cope with about this history and how are they reframing that history through the lens of these springs?
0: That is, I'm still stuck on the distinction between history and folklorists, and that is so interesting that one of you is more interested in what actually happened, and the other one is more interested in people's responses to their fears and right. what what drives them. And I feel like when we're talking about legends in Lexington or hauntings or something like that, people immediately want to know, you know, is it is it real? And there's this fascination that I always wondered why we're so fascinated with it. And now it's starting to make sense that it's because we're afraid and we want to know about our safety in part. Yeah, um,
1: and yeah, that's true. If you can say, well, that is not documented, you might be able to just pretend like that. Yeah, exactly.
0: relevant. yeah. I have so many more questions for you. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and launch into some Lexington hauntings.
1: Okay, great. This portion of WRFL's programming is made possible in part by Broomwagon Coffee and Bikes. Located at 800 North Limestone Street, Broomwagon offers a cafe and espresso bar in addition to its full service bike shop. For more information, you can visit BroomwagonBikes.com or call 859-554-6938. WRFL thanks Broomwagon for supporting College Radio.
0: Welcome back to WRFL Lexington. This is Bree with the second episode of Lex Talk, where today I'm talking with Professor Jean-Marie Rouhe who is telling us about some legends of Lexington, as well as a bit about her research and the definitions of legends in general. So before the break, I said that we were going to maybe delve into some Lexington hauntings, and I talked last week actually with uh, Doug High who was the producer of Bell Breezing and The Gilded Age of the Bluegrass and we talked about Bell Breezing and I remember talking with you over email about Hauntings in Lexington and you mentioned her name. Do you know anything about Bell haunting sightings or hauntings in general in Lexington?
1: I do know something about hauntings in general. I've never heard about Bell haunting any place, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Because when you have legends about these heroic figures Mm -hmm. or local heroic figures, right, um, loosely speaking, uh, that have become associated with a place, very often their reputation lives on, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so people may still see them. Good example is um, uh, uh, Linwood Montell, who's a Kentucky folklorist, has written two books on ghosts in Kentucky. Um, has a Lexington legend citing that Daniel Boone appeared in a local house, right? So he was haunted. Mm -hmm. Um, Ashland is said to be haunted by the spirit of Henry Clay. So uh, the place that these people are associated with, um, these famous people, to some extent, may hold uh, their spirit, right? And people may see it as a result.
0: When people are citing different historical figures or ghosts, um, are the sightings typically consistent? Like what the people look like or do they appear in all kinds
1: of different They're forms? usually consistent. That is very interesting. And so then we have an interesting question. Um, if you know that there's been a haunting established in Ashland, let's say, um, and it's supposedly of Henry Clay, and you know what Henry Clay looks like, or you kind of know what people who lived about that time looked like, um, when you see an apparition, which is actually fairly rare in ghost encounters, you usually don't see the apparition. But if you do, it's not surprising that you rely on what you know mm-hmm. and see you know, features that look like uh, you know, 18th century gentlemen, if you will, or 19th century, as the case may be. Um, but, If you know there's a haunting and you don't see a thing, but you sense something like there's a weird noise or doors are opening and closing, then you're going to assume, oh, must be Henry, right? Mm -hmm. You must be here (laughs) or whoever the ghost is, right? So um, the story then, um, the narrative has this power to kind of create, to prime the pump, Um, And we call that the cultural source hypothesis. So you already have um, a predilection to assume that this is going to be the haunting, this is going to be the encounter that you have. Um, And so you read it from that point of view. Now, if you've never heard anything about Henry Clay, or if you have no idea about the historical figure, um, you may still have a supernatural encounter in an old house but you don't necessarily put that name to it. So that's the experiential source, right? Mm-hmm. Where something uncanny happened to me. I don't know what it is, but a lot of people will go back and try to find the data, right? Um, so Linwood Montell has another story about Lexington. That's a similar thing where a friend invited someone to stay for the first time in his house that he had remodeled. He was the first overnight guest he had this uncanny experience where he was, the guest, where he was experiencing like stabbing pains in his chest and he was hearing noises. And the next day, supposedly they went and did a research on the house and found out that someone had been stabbed to death in the house three times. Terrifying. And he was feeling three stabbing pains, right? So there you go. So mm-hmm. it was after the fact, I mean, the, the event he experienced, and then they put a name to it.
0: Okay, so it can go both ways. You can you can rely on your preconceived notions of what might be around you or you can have unexplained phenomenon like that. Are you someone who personally, and I know you said this is not the folklorist's role, but are you personally someone who believes
1: in hauntings? Yeah, so um, I always tell my students this. Um, I am really, if there are hauntings in the world, I am not receptive to them. Mm-hmm. I have been in so many places as a legend specialist that are said to be haunted, and I have absolutely no reaction.
0: I'd say that's a good armor in your field.
1: I suppose it is, <laughs> you know, but other folklorists, like we had our um, legend conference at Gratz Park, which is now the sire, right? And we did that precisely because I knew all the haunting legends. And we actually had a ghost hunter come and do a reading of Gratz Park. It was really interesting. Um, But then a lot of the people in the group, she told us about ghost hunting apps that you could download to your phone. They downloaded them to the phone. And then for the next two days, they kept having all these weird pings on their phone about encounters. Um, But even without that, we've stayed in haunted places um for other legend conferences and people had weird dreams and they came down the next day and they told us about them or you know heard odd sounds in their rooms and I'm like nothing ever happens to mm-hmm. me i'm totally oblivious if it's happening i'm just like whatever mm-hmm. which is good because i can't watch horror i i i have really bad nightmares <laughs> yeah it's best if I don't have ghost encounters. I yes,
0: think. I think I would be someone who would have those bad dreams just because yep. I'm so suggestible as a person. So exactly. maybe I wouldn't be a good folklorist because I'd be
1: in those areas all the time. Yeah, or maybe you would be because then you could be uh, good at eliciting, you know, very often a shared experience gets mm-hmm. you to elicit other people to tell you their stories. So True. That's a, that's a nice thing. So
0: you mentioned Graz Park. Um, what yeah. would you mind telling us about the the legends surrounding that place or any other places in Lexington that are notorious. Yeah.
1: So Gratz Park um, is interesting, first of all, because of its history. And this is often true that the legacy of the place um, is what brings about the hauntings that there, if the place is associated with some kind of unsettling past, it can, uh, result in stories about hauntings. So Gratz Park served as a hospital during the Civil War. And so that is one piece that leads to this um, idea that it was haunting, haunted um, very much like um, Waverly and Louisville because of its um, history as a tuberculosis hospital. So uh, a site of a lot of death, a site of violence, um, a site where somebody died there, right? Um, so Campbell House also hotels are very common places for haunting, mm-hmm. especially old hotels. <laughs> Campbell House also supposedly two women have been killed there over the years. Um, and their ghosts wander the halls. Again, it's interesting to me. Uh, both Campbell House and Gratz Park or aka the sire have now been remodeled. And has the remodeling disturbed the ghosts? Mm-hmm. And I haven't had an opportunity yet to go back to talk to the local people who work there Mm and say, okay, so are people still reporting that on the third floor of Gratz Park, there's a sound of two children playing ball in the hallway?
0: That was something that they'd reported before?
1: Yes. In the basement of Gratz Park, um, supposedly there was a young boy uh, in the laundry room. And so one of the women who worked there said to me, I took my son one day to work, you know, he was sick or whatever, um, or had a day off school. And I brought him to work and he was downstairs in the laundry room talking to somebody. And I said, Who are you talking to? He said, I'm talking to the little boy. Don't you see him? So.
0: Well, I'm someone who gets chills very easily and I I just
1: got them then. Yeah. Um, And so uh, those stories circulated, right, among the staff. And obviously got to be known in the community um and so it's uh very often uh, they would say uh the staff at Gratz park that people would complain who were on the second floor because of the noise the kids were making on the third floor but there were actually no kids staying on the third floor so wow
0: multiple reports
1: yeah it's the so same thing multiple you know Occurrences of this kind mm-hmm. of strange phenomenon. Now, could it be something absolutely natural with an old house and echoing, and some kind of atmospheric phenomenon? Of course, but I don't know much about atmospheric phenomena. I do know stories about ghosts, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, we as people know these kind of things, and so when it's something that seems like disembodied voices and activities that sound like human, but you don't see anything you you start to think about what is the nature of the afterlife and what is the nature of uh, violent death and leaving unfinished business i mean this is one of the essential premises right Mm -hmm. Um, that there's some kind of unfinished business that this person had that they're trying to work through and it's kind of our obligation to help
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and figure it out at least right
0: so part of the reason i wanted to ask you about hauntings in particular in Lexington is one when I was doing research for the show it's one of the things that people wanted to hear about most other than cocaine bear Um, and two it was because I was looking up resources online and I you mentioned a couple books but online I could not find any kind of directory of local haunted Lex places and maybe I just missed it but um is, uh, is Lexington known for its hauntings or is it a pretty rare thing? And is there a resource online if people are interested in this? I did see it, ghost tours of Lexington, which was interesting.
1: Yeah, there actually is. Um, hold on one sec. I'm going to put mm-hmm. the link for you so you can have it. But there's a haunted Kentucky site mm-hmm. and haunted Kentucky has indeed a Lexington page. <clears throat> there's also... Patty Starr the ghost hunter who came she actually lives um in Bardstown but she came and did that ghost um I did see her website one. yes yes so Patty Starr has a book about hauntings of Kentucky mm-hmm. and includes for example haunting she did a an investigation of the Kentucky theater in downtown Lexington.
0: Oh, do you um, know what she found there
1: that it's haunted that it is haunted <laughs> tick the box okay he is said to be haunted by a former projectionist who when he was alive would come down into the theater and sit in the second row over on the left side of the theater to make sure the sound was good and once he ascertained that he'd get up and go back upstairs to the projection booth well he died of a heart attack in the theater apparently so again him an unexpected unexpected death right and people say they still see him when the movie starts sitting over on the left side particularly people who work there right Oh i never chills again anyone. yeah mm-hmm. i've never noticed that but now that it, once kentucky opens back up after the mm-hmm. pandemic i'm going to be like hmm. i hope it does fingers yeah, crossed back over there so um it's interesting because hauntings as i said do tend to cluster in certain types of places so old mansions particularly um in America, old mansions often associated with plantations. um, And that is one way to peel back um, some of the concerns about the legacy of slavery um, that have become public spots, right? So there are several in Lexington that are associated with these kinds of hauntings, Ashland being one, um, Campbell House being another. So uh, John Hunt Morgan House, for example, that are now open to the public. And that seems to somehow prompt, I guess, um, encounters with ghosts or at least publicizing it because before it would have just been a private house. And if you had ghosts, who would know unless you Mm -hmm. told it people, right? So there's that. Um, Libraries, university libraries in particular are often said to be haunted.
0: Do we have any reports of library hauntings on UK's campus?
1: Yes, the fifth floor of W.T. Young, my students tell me is haunted.
0: Interesting. I, I mean, that's a relatively newer library, if I'm right. Yep. yep. What are they saying? Um,
1: that they don't like to study on the f- fifth floor.
0: That's interesting because that's my floor. That's the one I go to.
1: Fifth <laughs> floor, too. I was like, you're kidding me. Fifth floor? No. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, that, that uh, you know, the shelves, you know, they have those automatic shelves. Mm-hmm. Shelves move and no one's there. Um, strange noises, feels cold, so that they try to avoid going to the fifth floor of W.T. Young. Um, and of course, then another legend that you and I have already talked about with W.T. Young uh, that's common in university libraries is that it's sinking.
0: Yes, I was going to ask you about this and segue away from hauntings because... You know, folklore is so much more than just hauntings but we are oddly fascinated with that one as a community sure <laughs> um, but yes i interviewed you a year and a half ago or so about some common university of kentucky legends mm-hmm. and one of the ones that it seems like every freshman hears is that the willie t library was is sinking because they didn't account for the weight of the books and it's built over
1: karst what do you what can you tell us about that so what I can tell you is that uh, libraries sinking across the United States, or at least North America um, on university campuses is one of the most common legends. It has nothing, so we're not special. To- no, we are not special. <laughs> <laughs> we are actually part of a very um, venerable tradition of libraries. Um, Elizabeth Tucker, who has two books on campus legends, including one on um, dedicated to ghosts on campuses. But in her book on just general campus legends, she documents library after library that is said to be sinking. And it's interesting because um, even though I'm a legend specialist, when WT was first built, and of course it's named for WT Young, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Who endowed the money um, and is a you know famous local person. Um, We were there was a legend going around campus that said that W. T. Young was told the architects told him this is a bad place to put your library because of the karst, because of the caves, because of the geology of Kentucky. Um, But he insisted that he wanted the highest place on campus, Mm -hmm. and so over the the um, objections of the experts. His ego, right, was so outrageous that that he insisted that this happen. I heard that and went, "Oh yeah, that's typical." Even though I'm a legend specialist, right? Yeah. So we can all um, uh, fall for this when it fits a narrative, right? That we like. So what are the what are the debates, if you will, going on having to do with a library sinking? Well, in in this case, if you blame WT, I think he was probably uh, not at all. Uh, concerned that it be the highest point on campus but this idea that if you were wealthy you have this supreme ego and you think you can just do what you want right um and that's one possible debate a second possible debate we say these people are experts engineers architects etc shouldn't they know better Right? Yeah. Why are they building it on this bad piece of ground? There had to be some other place to put this library where the books wouldn't make it sink. So um, it's a debate about uh, kind of um, you know common sense versus book learning. When I went to UVA for my graduate work and one of the things that um, UVA has is a very strong rivalry with Virginia Tech. And most of the engineers that work for the Department of Transportation in Virginia come out of the esteemed program of engineering at Virginia Tech. And so every single bad road decision ever made, UVA graduates say, well, what do you expect? Huh. <laughs> Virginia Tech people, right? So there's a rivalry there,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: there's also a sense that you know they're not really as smart as they think they are. Yeah. So uh, these things don't have to be, these debates don't have to be a matter of life and death. Although of course, if your bridge collapses, it could be. Yeah, but, your library uh, sinks into the ground. Yes. <laughs> but um, they, they do get at things in our society that cause us some kind of concern or stress or anxiety, right? To some <laughs> extent, whether that's the nature of the afterlife or whether it's, we should really trust our experts um, and whether uh, they're willing to bow to the whims of a millionaire who says, no, I want this.
0: Yeah, so you can, in your experience, can you always trace a popular legend back to a fear or concern? Yes. Oh, that's so interesting to me. <laughs> I will ask you about another library concern on UK's campus, namely uh-huh. the footstabber incident uh, right yeah. after this break. Okay. WRFL's programming is made possible in part by Pearl's Restaurant. Pearl's Pizza offers wood-fired pizza, salads, and a selection of vegan options. Pearl's is located at 133 North Limestone. For more information, you can call 859-309-0321 or visit www.pearlspizzapie.com. WRFL thanks Pearl's for supporting College Radio. All right, welcome back to WRFL Lexington. My name is Bree and you're listening to my show Lex Talk. Today we're talking about Lexington myths legends. Well, actually just legends. We established the difference between myths and legends at the beginning of the show. And we're now talking about UK's campus with Professor Jean-Marie Rugier willoughby So we just talked about the myth of UK library sinking and how that might connect to our concerns about power and education and decisions being made that we might be critical of by by people in positions of power. Um, But I have another library question which is about the library footstabber which I think was based on a verified incident. That is a legend that now lives on. Would you call that a legend if it is based on a verified incident? Yes,
1: okay because as we were talking about earlier, uh, folklore can be true right mm-hmm. So if you have a supernatural encounter, um, even if other people do not ex- accept that it was supernatural, but you think it is, um, if there is some kind of disturbing incident, whether that's um, a violent attack um, or you know a, a bridge collapse, um, these kind of things can form the basis of a narrative tradition designed to cope with it. So the footstabber, you know, although the actual, uh, as far as we know, the actual events were, you know, over within less than a year. The person who was doing that has become a campus celebrity, if you will, or at least a concern to people who were studying in young library, often in remote places, right? Cause it's a big library and it's, you know, distant. You can be from underground where the basement is all the way up to the fifth floor, which is apparently haunted. And so um, you're kind of on your own and it's hard to see once you're in a carol, it's hard to see around you, which makes for really good studying but not really good defense. If there's a person there waiting to, you know, stab your feet. So. <laughs> for whatever reason such a
0: weird thing to do a and weird thing to do i i don't think they ever caught a person no they never did catch which probably lends well. to the mystery
1: yes, of the whole thing to the mystery you're absolutely right but unusual kinds of attacks on defenseless and unsuspecting people are actually one of the things that legends are are specialty uh of of urban uh, legends about violence of some kind, right? And it cannot it, it can be you know, extreme violence, but very often it is not, but it's an absurd way to attack. It turns the world into um, a fearful, dangerous place. And why the university is particularly home to a lot of these legends is because for students, this is the first time they've lived away. they're on their own. They're coping with what Elizabeth Tucker in her analyses of legends of campus calls the enchanted landscape, which is magical in so many ways. You went to UK, you know what it's like to go to that university for the first time and all of the amazing experiences that you have and it opens the door onto this kind of uh, reality that's separate. I mean, this is what's said about universities, right? Mm -hmm. We don't live in a reality. No, I always thought of it
0: as the snow globe.
1: Exactly. Right? And yet in the in the fairy legends, right? Of when you go to the magical kingdom, there's always that moment where it turns from being the beautiful to being the threatening. So on the other side of the coin is always the threat and the threat is not fake. There are indeed people on campuses who get drugged at parties, right? There are indeed hazing incidents. Um, But that doesn't make them any less legends if what the legend is trying to do is cope with the stress, face this very difficult situation that we find ourselves in, in contemporary America about protecting ourselves and being safe and possibly being exposed to violence. One of my favorite legends about violence that is just so absurd is, and yet, and very compelling, so people react um and take precautions because of it, which is part of the goal of the legend, is protecting you as well. But um the have you heard the legend about when you're in a parking lot, say at a mall, you always look under your car. Before I you actually,
0: get in it? I have not heard that one. Okay. I've definitely heard the get in and lock your door. It's fast Ooh, as
1: Yes, possible. there's the get in and lock your door. Well, there's a legend that is fairly common that there's this guy so I was a guy who hangs out underneath cars particularly single women with a razor blade or some kind of cutting implement and he cuts your Achilles tendon as you're standing there putting your groceries in the car or your packages in the car thus disabling you mm-hmm. so he can then I don't know steal your car rob you kill you whatever it is not exactly clear what the ultimate goal of this is it seems to me this is the worst possible way to attack somebody. <laughs> i mean you have to hit the achilles tendon exactly you have to know that they, that you, whatever your knife, knife is or whatever is going to cut through their shoe if they're wearing a shoe um then you have to extract yourself from underneath the car to perform this the attack I'm super
0: grateful for your reality check because my fear response was immediately like, I'm going to check under my car every time now until you said that. And, you know, probably I will still think about it every time.
1: Okay. So, what you're experiencing is what we folklorists call ostension, which is that your behavior changes because of the legend. So, does it hurt you to look under your car? No, it doesn't. Does it hurt you to? Uh, touch the toe of the Patterson statue. That's another one I wanted to talk about. Right? That it's going to affect your test. You know that what affects your test is did you study? Have you been going to class? But come on, how hard is it to touch the toe of the Mm -hmm. Patterson statue and bring yourself a little bit of luck in a stressful situation? So very often, um, ostention or changing your behavior because of the legend is minor where it becomes much more dangerous, of course, as if it becomes obsessive and it can also be harmful. So the Slender Man legends are example, right? Where Slenderman resulted in violence against people. So um, I, I don't mean to dismiss, you know, the range here and the series. Yeah, absolutely. But um, it, it very often is not that serious and may protect you, right? So um, my students, have been submitting legends about um, going to parties and never leaving your drink unattended.
0: Oh, would you Um, call that a legend? I felt like that was just common sense.
1: Yeah, well, it's based on the idea that there are people out there who are designed to harm you, right? Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, it is common sense because this is part of the reality that we're faced with. But the legend capitalizes on that uh, fear of a dangerous environment that the campus features or that contemporary American life features. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many of these students learn these legends for the first time when they're about to go to college.
0: Yeah, a very vulnerable
1: time. Exactly. Yeah. So you need to be able to protect yourself in this magical place and not just assume everything is going to be sweetness and light. hmm
0: Just as a kind of fun exercise, can I ask you about some other Lexington legends and you maybe elucidate for me the reasons behind? If I know them. Their existence. Okay. Well, there is one um, that is, I think, less popular, but uh, a colonel staff member, Kentucky colonel staff member, wrote an article about the Whitfield stump.
1: Have you heard that one? Yes. I only learned of that because of you. Okay, did did you hear last year? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's just a very odd one. There's this old petrified stump that's around 2 million years old um, on the campus. They ended up moving it. There used to be a legend, and I did not hear it through my time until I read the article, my time at UK, but there used to be a legend that um, it would steal your soul. And I just wondered
1: what on earth could have led to that? Yeah, that's a really good question. (laughs) What could lead to that? So cursed places are not that uncommon, right? Um, That can do you harm, the supernatural harm. Um, And it's usually something that was in the history of the tree. So on on, um, um, 4-H camps, on 4-H camps, there's almost always a cursed tree where Um, a witch was said to have lived near where a witch was said to have lived or somebody died Um, and so trees have I think partially because of their age but partially because of their association with these kind of supernatural encounters um, often can gain bad reputations but since I've never heard anyone tell me that Whitfield stump legend I've never been able to parse out what it is I just know this is part of a larger tradition about cursed trees oh, Cursed trees. we seem to have a fair number of in america
0: yes <laughs> yeah. it's so interesting there's another one that i heard many times throughout uk um, as people would joke kind of darkly about it which was that if you get hit by a car on campus your mm-hmm. tuition will be paid for and then it's well is it any car or is it a campus vehicle and i looked into this one and it is really not true unless you take some kind of claim out against the university sure. um, but where would that one stem from?
1: So there's an entire series. This is once again, a university uh, legend tradition um, about the university, uh, the university's responsibility to the student. Um, this comes back to this question of, is, are you adults or are you not adults if you're on a university campus? Uh, Good question. So Yes. And so, yes, technically, because, you know, most people on university campuses are of legal age, right? You can vote and the like. Um, And yet you're in this uh, transitional period where the university views you as its charges, its wards, right? So the debate that student legends often have is... um, does the university have my best interests at heart or not? And we see plenty of evidence in daily life where sometimes yes, and sometimes no. So another similar legend to that one about the car hitting you and getting free tuition is if your roommate dies, you get straight A's. So another was,
0: unverified one.
1: Yeah, definitely not true. Um, <laughs> this is, this is a, the benevolent university. Mm-hmm. Um but then there are stories where the university is not so benevolent.
0: I could definitely understand the fears behind those. I mean, not knowing if you're going to be able to pay tuition or not knowing absolutely. if you're going to make grades. I can see our minds naturally going there. Um, but there, it was amazing to me how pervasive those ones were.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they are. And then students make jokes about it, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, I I, <laughs> I, don't know how I'm going to pay tuition next, next semester. I'll just run out in front of this car. I have heard that.
0: Yeah. Very dark joke many a time.
1: Another one, this one's kind of, I
0: I had not heard this one at all until I wrote my article. And then it seemed like older folks on uh, Facebook, where our articles are often posted, they said this the most in response to my article. It was that um, when they were on campus, there was a legend that if you were a virgin and you walked by Patterson statue, he would stand up. And that one to me is fascinating just because it's very obviously not true. And cool. yet so many of them had it as a memory of their time at college. Yeah. And I, I guess the fear could just be of social ridicule or something like that. But uh, what do you, what do you see, what do you perceive about the origins oh, that of that one.
1: one? First of all, that one is also common, uh, seated statues of, you know, founders of universities or prominent. So religions. weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, standing up when a virgin enters the quad or whatever. So this is the debate about, um, the dangerous part of college um, in the sense that sexual activity, uh, breaking sexual taboos um, is one of the things parents are very concerned about, right? Um, and it becomes to the student body more of a joke, but the concerns are real um, in the sense that, you um, Parents are obviously concerned about it, but so too are students in this new environment when they've heard all of these terrible stories about what happens to you if you drink too much at a party or whatever. Again, which are real. I'm not, this is the important thing to remember about legends. Mm -hmm. They don't mean fake. They mean a narrative tradition that doesn't have to be documented in a given historical moment or event but that has at its core, something that we know happens or can happen Mm -hmm. that we're worried about. So um, to the, you know, 19 year old, that's more of a funny joke. Mm -hmm. Um, But to the parents, it's not so funny. Yeah, (laughs) And of course there are also darker um, stories about sexual behavior um, in the narrative legend tradition that show that even though we might be making a joke of this one, we as students, uh, there are others that show we're, we're quite concerned.
0: Yeah. I remember when I interviewed you before, you said that legends help us discuss controversial issues in a relatively safe way. And I wanted to talk to you about that quote because I felt like it was very profound and is a argument for the importance of legends.
1: Yes. I agree, and I think also why um, you know people tend to think that folklore is going away, you know, it's disappearing, um, and some types of folklore do disappear, right? We don't, we as Americans don't normally tell fairy tales. We know them; we tell them when we're kids, um, but we don't use them as a productive genre anymore to convey messages. They're more entertainment. And they're entertainment, especially for kids, even though they weren't originally intended just for children, they're for everybody, Um, which is one reason why tales often have to be cleaned up before we give them to our kids these days. But um, legends are really productive. This this and jokes perhaps, are the two most productive genres in North America. And because they're so productive, it's important to understand them and understand what these social issues are that they're uncovering and trying to reveal if you wanna understand the way this society is working. Mm -hmm. Seems to me.
0: So interesting. So we are running low on time, but before we ended, I wanted to ask you just a fun question about the quote that you have at the end of your email your email signature, which is yep. the universe is made of stories, not atoms by Muriel. Is it Rukeyser?
1: Kaiser yeah.
0: Kaiser What does that quote mean to
1: you? So that to me means, um, <laughs> uh, my scientists might not like it. I, in fact, I had a very, um, serious friend say, well, that's just stupid. Everybody knows it's made of atoms. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> I know that, <laughs> that it really is made of atoms. Differences but, in
0: academic disciplines.
1: Yes. But the, um, the, the heart of it to me is as a folklorist, the stories we tell are not only meaningful to us, um, but they reveal um, so much about the way the human experience is, is created and the way the human experience is conveyed to others. So as a linguist and a folklorist, things that we say to each other and the patterns and the things that we say to each other um, have so much meaning. So to me, that really is the heart of the human experience or the universal experience, right? Um, And I only found that quotation last spring, in fact, um, when I was teaching Introduction to Folklore and I had a teaching assistant and he came in and he said, oh, I found a quote that I think you would love um, that it's about stories and I said, really? He said, yeah, I sent it to you. And I was so taken with it that I now use it as the um, uh, image for my introduction to folklore class, right? Oh, wonderful. Like, yeah. And, and I put it on my signature file. I had never had anything like that on my signature file before, but it just encapsulated so much my view of why folklore is important and why the study of the way we convey meaning is important. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I thought it was beautiful and was excited to hear your story behind it. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been excellent talking to you. I feel like we could talk for many more hours about legends in Lexington and beyond.
1: Yes, I would be happy to come back sometime if you have other ones you want to run by me. Okay, excellent.
0: (laughs) You have been listening to WRFL Lexington. I have been talking to Professor Jean Marie Rouye Willoughby, a professor of Russian studies, folklore, and linguistics at the University of Kentucky, as, w- as well as a wearer of many other hats in the linguistics world. Um, and she's been talking to me about Lexington legends and University of Kentucky legends. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on. Tune you in next welcome. week. Tune in next week and we'll be talking about some other quirky Lexington facts and commonly asked questions.